here. My name is Esther Verki, book writing expert and writer. And I help you overcome the fear of writing and publishing in your book. I offer an online course called Believe You Can Write and I support you with one-on-one coaching. Get in touch with me if you need help. And please share this podcast with a friend who you know needs to hear these messages. And please review this podcast and leave a comment on the platform you're listening to right now. And today I'm so excited to have Michelle Giuliani from Switzerland with me. Michelle is a business development and strategy consultant, coach, TEDx speaker, and just became an Amazon best-selling author. She co-founded the Facebook group Women Rock Switzerland to support women's economic empowerment. Today, membership has grown to almost 12,000 engaged members from more than 80 countries. While breaking free from abuse, Michelle gave a TEDx talk titled Rowing Through Crisis with Your Team where she outlined life-saving strategies to help people get out of crisis. Welcome, dear Michelle. Thank you so much, Esther. What an incredible introduction. I'm so excited to be here with you and with your listeners. Um, Living without fear is something we all need a lot more of. (laughs) And I'm so excited for you and us as we are co-editors of this book, Inspired Journeys, and we just became a best-selling, uh, Amazon best-selling book. How it's you, incredible. It's insane. It's insane. Oh my God, I had such a range of feelings. First of all, I had fear. I was like, really? No, it can't possibly be. And the fear was based in like, have we done enough? Is it true? You know, and even though I was getting screenshots in France and in the United States and in Germany that we were number one in our category, I could not believe that we did it, that we did it. You know, they're so incredibly secretive about the algorithm and what is this code you have to crack in order to get there. But watching sales come in, watching people get engaged in social media, knowing that people were quietly emailing um, through their newsletters and connecting, whether they had a business or whether they were sharing with friends and family. And people got creative, those who do have a business, because there's a business directory component to the story part of our book, where over 70 women's headed businesses helped sponsor this book. So they also had a vested interest in seeing the book be a success. And so some of them got creative with their ad campaigns and and saying, well, I'll buy five copies of the book, one for myself and four for a giveaway campaign in social media. So we just saw so much energy and so much enthusiasm and it really felt insane. It felt great and unbelievable. And then I was walking out of a dinner that I was having for a very special birthday party yesterday. And I, I was telling, I was coaching myself, now's a good time to feel, it's okay to feel. You've got enough screenshots, it seems true. You can allow yourself a moment of enthusiasm. You can even get excited. You can even think about your co-editors, Esther Berkey and Denise Nickerson, who are both already published authors and what it means to them. And you can like send a bunch of love messages. Like you can go, Michelle, you can go. And sure enough, my feelings rose and my energy rose and, and it's a fact. Yeah. Congratulations, Esther. We're, we're, we're Amazon bestsellers. 
Congratulations, Michelle. And thank you so much for this journey, book journey with you. So you have this wonderful story in your book, which is very touching about abuse. And you asked me to reread your story just a few moments ago before we started this podcast to, to get into the story. And you said you felt very emotional about it because it's part of your life and it's part of a sad story. Do you want to yeah, share yeah, a little so, bit? So, so I asked you for permission to come 10 minutes late so that I could reread my story because... Because, because the story is, of course, wider, bigger, deeper, stronger than, than you know, a couple thousand words permit. And so now it's published and, and it's an Amazon bestseller, which means it's in a lot of people's hands. And, um, and so when I reread my story this morning, which is the first time I've done that in, you know, since, since the final edit, um, I really had compassion for this woman who went through this stuff. And I was like, oh my God. And, uh, and so as I was reading it, I was like, wow, I'm so sad that I had to write that story, right? That, that people need these warning signs and symptoms. Um, but they do. We, we need a how-to manual in terms of addressing, gosh, is it me? Am I, am I someone who's in an abuse structure right now? Am I someone, whether that structure's at home and in the family, as in my case, or whether that structure's at work with a harassing boss um, or a toxic individual or toxic culture, people don't really know how to recognize the signs of abuse and strong, powerful, empathetic, leading people, whether they're men or women of all genders, we're the last to know often because we have a can-do attitude, because we have a positive spirit, because we never think for one second that our intimate relationships are going to be um, a cause for such controlling behavior um, and pain and in my case, financial, political, emotional abuse um, through a high conflict divorce. And you mentioned the TEDx talk. And as, so in that TEDx talk, I, I mentioned the loss of my father and I mentioned um, this uh, international divorce. I think it is a 13 to 30 second mention in the whole TED talk, but the talk is about teaming through personal crisis. And so you might imagine that a fraction of our consultancy now handles these really difficult cases of people who are whistleblowers and people who are facing, um, you know, uh, mobbing at work scenarios. Or and you wrote a child a children's book on 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 mobbing. Is and so you know it can happen. It does happen. It's happening too frequently, and our abusers, um, the aggressors, um, are 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 often getting off scot-free. And if they are, you know, um, of certain personality disorders, they don't feel bad, right? There's no, it's not like they, they get quote their due or feel any empathy or, you know, for the, for the people that they're harming. And some of these people that we've been supporting have, you know, you know, one, one, one abusive individual can target one other individual. And the implications of that in health, safety, and sanity can have repercussions for hundreds of their family, friends, coworkers, and extended people who have to sort of fly in literally and functionally to support that individual or that family system or that business unit who's, who's going through this problem and this crisis. So the wake of an abuser is, is, uh, is wide. 
and um, and the the controls and the systems of controls that we have judicially um, are just not up to speed and up to par. And we see this in national politics and geopolitics um, right now of our time uh, that that justice, um, especially what I like to call loving justice, right? Justice that you know that does no harm but does prevent further harm. Um, it's it's too slow if at all ever happening. Yes, Michelle, I'd like to go a little bit more personal if you don't mind. So when do you remember you realized that you were in an abusive relationship? Well, hindsight yeah. is twenty twenty, and that question, you know, as writers, we get to place that question in time wherever we want to. Um, so if your listeners can follow a timeline with me really fast, um, my family was just not trained at all in understanding, um, you know, what, what is or isn't too far. Um, we had alcoholism in our family and that has its own, uh, systems. We had also, um, some mental health issues in our family with, uh, bipolar disorder, and that has its own challenges. Um, but what we're talking about when it, you know, those, those people and those individuals were still very loving, very empathetic, you know, they had, they had some issues, but I think the boundary between those systems and really, um, psycho or sociopathic, uh, you know, levels of, of fear and control is it's just another level. And so we didn't really know the boundaries or the systems. And so you'd think, and a lot of people do think, you know, why doesn't he or she know um, that that level of control is too much? Or why doesn't that person know that, you know, if you're not allowed to fly home to your family and you're wealthy, that that might be too, 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 too much control? Or if you're being told how to dress or what to wear, that that might be too much control. Or if you're in a public environment and you've set the stage and laid the food and the table and and made the welcome, and then you're getting publicly um, admonished for very little insignificant things, but just as a method to design to harm, unappreciate, or um, you know, put you down, that that can be too far, right? And so I think what it's a little bit the you know the 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 warming water around the frog situation, right? I think it's very, very incremental and very, very imperceptive until all of a sudden you have a wake-up moment. And um, I think in the abuse, my wake-up moment, you know, was a decade too late. Um, and, and, and in hindsight, of course, I can go back to a very early memory that doesn't appear in the book of, you know, a date gone wrong. I don't think anything went wrong. It was a normal date. We'd had dinner and a movie, um, but I had upset him in some way. And he asked me to get out of the car. And it was in a New York City par parking place, poorly lit in the middle of the night. We had taken the last movie. So it's, I don't know, 1230 at night. And he drove away. And I remember, you know, and I married that, right? So, so there's also there's, so there's, a, there's an awakening that has to happen um, within me, the, in this case, the abusee, of what is, what is an appropriate standard, um, what, 
you know, because of course, one minute later, he comes back. Um, and I didn't have to fend for myself or find my way home. But that that is part of a grooming process that builds in controls and makes you be, you know, nice or appeasing or pleasing to not upset um, your your person. Um, and that and that 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 structure that you fall into as as I did. I mean, I didn't want to make my way home at at midnight plus um, from a dark parking lot where the buses are done. Um, we were far away. Um, so I, I definitely wanted that ride home. And so you acquiesce and you and you become pleasant and you smile and you make yourself small. And that is a training process that in my case um, happened and started with this individual since I was 16 years old. I married very young at the age of 24, um, but the grooming would have started at, at age 16. Mm, I'm sorry, Michelle. And when you think back now, what helped you the most or what can you give as an advice to people who are maybe in, in a situation like that now? Well, I think even so the, the big eye openers are um, start to notice right away if you are isolated or alone, um, because isolation um, is, is a tactic and a strategy. It's part of the playbook that almost all abusers will use because they're seeking your total attention and they're seeking total control over you in some form or another. So if you wake up one day and realize actually that you've learned not to like your friends and family, or you've learned not to, not to be in contact with them, or that you're living very, very far away. And, 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 in you know, there, there are lots of mechanisms that were exposed in, in my story. I hope everybody gets the book, Inspired Journeys. Um, but the, the mechanisms of control, they, they weren't just about my, my body, my appearance, um, my intellect, uh, they were also actual functional control, not just emotional controls, like of the finances or of decision making and where we vacation. And so if you find, I found that I was making a lot of excuses and justifications like, oh, we're really living in, in interdependence, like I rely on him and he relies on me. Um, but in fact, that wasn't mutually uh, perceived. And, uh, and the functional controls that I had allowed let go in my life, or that maybe that were just, I, I say allowed let go, because of course, I want to take personal responsibility. Um, but what the what the experts would say is that no, those controls were taken from, from you. So I think um, beginning with isolation. And then for me, the, the, the lukewarm turned hot, when I was doing everything right, right, I was the perfect corporate wife. I was, you know, hostess with the mostess. I could cook and our children were, you know, were and are amazing. Um, and, uh, and, and, and I had a business that was starting to thrive and we were doing a fundraiser that was succeeding and I was hosting events in my house and uh, we blew the target out of the water and, and I was getting a tremendous amount of attention and accolade and praise for successes that I was generating outside of my relationship. And in my relationship, it couldn't have been more, uh, uh, it was 180 degree difference. And I remember one time just, you know, downstairs in the laundry room saying, you know, hey, that hurt my feelings when you said that in front of 75 people at our dinner event for this fundraiser. Um, can you, you know, why did you do that? Like, what, what was the point? Like, you know, we're, we're succeeding and it's not even for me, it's for, you know, girls and, and, and scholarship programs and, and girls education in the developing world. Like, why would you 
why would you say that and undermine all that I'm designing and developing and the momentum of 75 other people who want to give and contribute? And of course, the answer was all personal attacks. And um, and and that's painful. And then and then you have you have a wake up moment where you're like, well, is that normal? <laughs> and you start gauging with your friends and family and they're like, well, no, honey, that's not normal. Um, and so I think that wake up period is very, very slow. And in so many people's cases, even if you're fully awake and dealing um, with the consciousness that you may need to leave, which is my global advice, if you do need to leave, um, not everyone can. Not everyone can stand on their own two feet. I did not have rights outside of my marriage. I no longer had accounts in my own name. I did not therefore have access to money. I had let go my career and my job in favor of entrepreneurship and availability to my spouse and my family. And so these many things com compile into, into the reality of, well, what really are functionally my choices? Many people leave even when they have absolutely nothing. And ultimately that, um, well, I didn't choose to leave. I was thrown out um, in a foreign country. But uh, but when when that happened, I realized, okay, I, I'm on my way to a women's shelter. I'm calling my family for help to get out of here and get safe. And those were my choices. Um, and if you don't have your papers, you're stuck. Uh, if you've been thrown out without papers or access, if you don't have your purse on your person, um, it's really scary and it's far too frequent. Um, my clients show me that it happens to men too. However, by and large across the world, um, men still out earn, are out positioned. Um, and yes, absolutely. Uh, abuse is equally hard. And when it comes to narcissistic personality disorder or toxic culture, it is 100% equal between the genders um, that men and women are equally affected. Um, the repercussions of it, um, less equal. Women still have less rights. Mm. Thank you so much, Michelle. You are so courageous to share your story here. I mean, to share your story in this podcast and also in the book. And I know it's not easy. And I know a lot of people of my clients who want to write their story, they're afraid of showing up and talking openly about it. How did you get so courageous? I think that's such a great question. Um, I, I'm, I like, I have a lot of curiosity and, um, and I had, I had some bad programming to overcome in that um, my high school, I was one of six white kids graduating from a mostly black and minimally Latino community. And I had a fabulous teacher um, who was teaching us literature of the of the African diaspora in high school. And I loved her. Um, but she told us and and I had this belief that writing is dangerous, that that writing is dangerous. And, and so I remember, basically, for, you know, the decades of my career going forward, I had this idea that writing is dangerous, and that when you put it down, it's there forever, and it can be used against you. So I really had to overcome that first. And the way I did that was by thinking about every best story ever told 
And for me, um, I love biography and I love, you know, as a coach, I also love to know how people got there and what were their, what were their changes and transitions and their perception and how did they wake up and, and why did they write? And there's really my synthesis of this after also talking to a bunch of authors who bravely told their story, whether they were going through a similar circumstance or whether they were facing a bad diagnosis. Um, that's another reason for teaming through personal crisis or whether they were, uh, you know, um, yeah, they had gone, there was in America, we have some people who face that bad diagnosis and then they get a bankruptcy and loss of house and, um, I, you know, a, a total identity shift of going from somebody who could host to somebody who can't anymore, um, or from rag, you know, from, from being rich to poor, which also happened in my case. So I would ask these people, what was the value of telling their story? And their global answer was, I did it for me. It was for my healing. It was to get it out. It was to make, make it known. It was to own the story, to not let other people own your narrative. So that was by and large, the primary reason people ended up writing was they could no longer live with it inside and the healing process of getting it outside and owning your words and owning your truth was something that I reached a point where I needed and wanted for myself too. And I would say there was one other reason. And that is that, um, you know, I, I use a quote by Maya Angelou in the, in the book, when someone shows you who they are, you should believe them the first time. And I think that's so much easier said than done, right? We have so much hope for the people around us and, and fantasies about who they are or who they're going to become. And all that hope and all that fantasy makes me a really great coach, right? I see people into a future they haven't yet seen for themselves. And I help them see it and believe it and get the motivation behind that. But the second reason people share their stories that I also was on board for was the never again mindset, right? This happened to me. I know it's happening all over the world. I know that we have to change the systems, um, that justices and judges have to be held accountable for their words and actions, and that systemic abuse from institutions and courts and legal systems has to be changed. And the only way that I can do that is through narrative and a little bit of teaching, what to look out for, what are the signs and symptoms, and how do I avoid it, and how do I get better positioned. And so I also, there's another quote. Um, I don't even remember who it's from, but it's basically the greatest feminist act is to tell your story. And I believe that's true for men or women, right? Feminism is a, is a, is about inclusion of all genders and all people. And so we want people to share their stories because real life lived experiences should not be lost. And that's ancient wisdom. That's Aboriginal and Native American wisdom of circle share and story share. And so I just absolutely love that flavor of our book that 31 authors from, they, they're part of Women Rock Switzerland, but they're from countries and cultures and faiths and industries and backgrounds that are as diverse and wide as you can imagine. And they've come together to create something really, really beautiful. And that is a sharing of personal experience and wisdom that really only life brings. And, you know, when we go to LinkedIn, we can read one another's bios and be impressed by one another's backgrounds, but personal story, personal narrative, you have to know people closer to get to, or they have to have 
the courage to write it down for us so that more people can read and more people can have access to that wisdom. So that's why I wrote and that's how I overcame it. Um, I would say one more thing, which is I went to a Me Too conference in Iceland. Um, I got to meet the prime minister of Iceland. I got to meet Angela Davis, um, an amazing American activist and writer. And I thought I would see incredible people sharing their story. But what I saw were advocates who were burnt out, who were exhausted, who were undernourished emotionally, under-resourced financially, and fighting the, quote, good fight. And I, I think that's where I pivoted from fighter against this violation to creator. And I had to become a creator because I, it was no longer sustainable or supportive for me at all in my body or my life to be a fighter. So I vowed that I would make the money required to pay the fighters who are called lawyers in my case. For some, they're called doctors, um, you know, but I would pay those specialist team members, but I would drop the fight. I would keep, I would fan the flames in terms of motivating my team, but it would not be my fight anymore. It would be their fight and I would go create. And so I think making that commitment to turn all learning into relevant tools, training or narrative was a big shift for me that made it possible to design this book with you, Esther. I'm so glad you've been our editor partner um, in crime with Denise Niggerson. And then to, yeah, to recruit these authors and, and, and get in contact with these business owners and to just know that all women need more visibility. All women need an Amazon best-selling author <laughs> status to get introduced as warmly as you introduced me. All women need more economic empowerment so that they have choices in their lives. And rights are not equally distributed right now. And certainly not with, you know, what's going on in my country yeah. in recent, recent politics. And just for our listeners, I remember, I hope you don't mind, Michelle, it wasn't easy to write your story. You, we were, you and me, we were talking about your story and you, you said, what shall I share? And I mean, it, it wasn't, wasn't easy at all. And I, I felt with you because it needed so much courage just to start writing for the first time about a story which had happened for or started so long, so many years ago, right? Yeah. I mean, I don't mind at all. I mean, I, number one, I had so much imposter syndrome. Like I have never identified as a writer. I, I know I do ghostwrite for leaders, but they're <laughs> speeches, right? They're not narrative. So number one, I don't, I've never identified as a writer until writing this book and thinking, oh, I can be a writer. I can be a best-selling author associated with this book. Like, wow. Um, so I had to overcome that. I also had to let go control because when you write a speech, you think a lot about your audience. You think a lot about who, you know, who's it for? What's our purpose? What are we asking at the end? Like there's a, there's a, there's a momentum or a motivation being designed. So I really couldn't get in touch with my momentum or my motivation for a really long time. And then, you know, quote, not being an author, I couldn't figure out how to write. I literally, I, I write in notebooks. I write on, of course I write on a computer too, but I, I ended up going on these walks in the forest with my phone and I would record myself trying to tell the story because I so badly wanted it to be in plain speech or simple English. And I would go off on these ridiculous tangents and I would go way too deep. 
much more than I, you know, than I want to share with the whole wide world. And so knowing what to share, what would have an impact, what would really help people if I want to help people, what do they really need to know? And all of that was honestly, it wasn't only by design. It was, I had to do a process of letting go control. I had to realize that I don't get to determine the audience, certainly not ever, but certainly not with a, a, a collective book, right? We all have different audiences. We all have different intentions. So I had to let go the notion that I could define the audience. And I had to let go the process of writing until, until, until I arrived. And honestly, it was deadlines that pushed me to, to write it. And eventually I was out of time and I had to get it out. And then, and then, yeah, there were many versions where I was trying to eliminate the details and eliminate, you want just enough pain and heartache that people feel it and believe it, but you don't want so much pain and heartache that they don't take action in their own lives. There's still a, a hope that I think anybody doing any crisis communications, we have to ultimately sell hope and sell faith. We have to communicate that so that people can feel that they have personal agency, that they can make changes, that they can grow consciousness, and that they can take action in their lives, whether they have anything at all, any money, any resources, any papers even, as our refugee sisters uh, and brothers experience due to climate crisis, due to war, uh, due to displacement for myriad reasons and threat to life, we, we have to sometimes value life and living above anything else. And so I started to believe that writing the story would be my ticket to freedom, emotionally and mentally from the cage of my own brain. I was and, and still am a little bit nervous about what happens because the people that are involved in this story in terms of the bystander behavior, in terms of my children who are adolescent and now one is an adult, um, but a 17 and 18 year old, both sons, um, what is the impact of sharing this story on them and in their lives and when it spreads, if it spreads, you know, far and wide beyond the, the borders of where we've already sold to become an Amazon bestseller, but what will be the feedback? Will I have to face heartache, pain, suffering, more gaslighting, more doubt, more attack? And, and the answer for most of the authors I interviewed who'd done this was, yes, you're going to get some of that. And so finally, I would quote Denise Nickerson, who says, my values are greater than my issues. And that's ultimately where I landed was I may face some issues. I may face some, again, some personal attack, but there's nothing um, apart from death that can happen to me or others who face something similar to me uh, that I haven't yet faced. And of course, I don't wish to die. So, <laughs> so I do think um, that whatever pain may be around the corner is completely surmountable and worth it for the relief of suffering that I hope a story like mine might be able to impart for others. And when I gave the TED talk, just to say uh, the TEDx talk in Lugano, it was to, you know, needle in the pin drop sounding audience. They were really, truly riveted. And I had never really experienced that exactly like that before. And afterwards, there was a drinks in a private room. This is pre-COVID. And there was a line of people coming up to tell me about their car accident that made, meant that they could no longer practice medicine and they had to rely on their brother and they lost everything and 
and another one with divorce and another one with a mobbing scenario at work, right? People for whom this story is needed, they identify themselves and they reach out. So that is ultimately um, who, in addition to myself, I'm writing for is to help people get out and, uh, and get on with it and go create the life that they deserve. Super hard to do, super worth it. <laughs> I'm so grateful, Michelle, that you share your story. You share your story here. You, I, I'm deadly sure that you're going to inspire many, many, many more women in the future with this story. And um, I, you, it's so beautiful how you encourage also our listeners to, to write their stories. So thank you. Thank you so much. Is there something you'd like to add to all what you shared already? Well, I know you and I were texting back and forth a lot about the bestseller status, but I would like to ask you your lived experience for your, for your listeners. What is, what, what did it feel like to be you? Cause we aren't in the same city. You know, what did it feel like to be you when that bestseller status, when those first screenshots started coming in? Because I think that that joy moment is a great way to end. I want everybody to share their stories because you might just be an Amazon bestseller too. <laughs> oh, great question, uh, Michelle. Yeah, I, I felt it cannot, I can't believe it first. <laughs> I thought it's not possible. We hope that it's going to work out, but we didn't know. And so I thought, no, it, it's not possible that it worked and that we got, that we had inspired so many to buy the book. And um, I had really hard time first to, to feel it. And, um, but the more, and the more I write about it now, <laughs> it becomes true. Writing helps also to get to the feelings, I think. Absolutely. And also to just realize and awaken to the reality. Like I often need to put it down there in black and white, you know, with my, or blue and white, if I'm using my blue pen, but, you know, put it down there on paper and see it. I have not yet written the words, I am an Amazon bestseller, <laughs> but I will do it after this call because, you know, or we are, it's definitely a collective. We are Amazon bestsellers. And I just, I have so that visibility really matters. You know, I got an immediate call to be on the podcast and I'm hoping for our authors that we're going to be on bigger stages with bigger audiences with, with, I want every author to have a TEDx talk. I want every woman to be able to charge a little bit more if she's in consulting, you know, it really, really impacts um, our credibility, which is always in doubt and jeopardy due to our gender. And we, we need every, women need a win right now. And uh, this win, I think, will really make everybody just elated and ecstatic and, our, and it impacts our whole community, right? I mean, 12,000 women are not part of this book or story, but when one woman succeeds, we all succeed. The impact to her community financially, emotionally, intellectually, women return those gifts to the community. We will be so transparent. I know you will be too about the how so that, uh, so that all of the authors who get to work with you can, can know that you now know this path and that, that this path is now open. It's an open door of possibility for everyone. Thank you. Thank you, Michelle, so much for having been here. 
Thank you for the invitation. I'm really grateful. And thank you for all of your incredible project management and encouragement and book handling and author and business owner handling. We've, we've worked very hard to get to this point and I couldn't be more proud and grateful and thankful to you. Thank you, Michelle. And dear listener, thank you so much for being here and for helping to spread the word about this podcast, about our book, and helping those who need to hear our messages. So have an amazing day and stop.